Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast series focusing on critical business decisions. Brought to you by Brady Ware and Company. Brady Ware is a regional, full-service accounting and advisory firm that helps businesses and entrepreneurs make visions a reality. Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast giving you, the listener, clear vision to make great decisions. In each episode, we discuss the process of decision-making on a different topic from the business owner's or executive's perspective. We aren't necessarily telling you what to do, but we can put you in a position to make an informed decision on your own and understand when you might need help along the way. My name is Mike Blake, and I'm your host for today's program. I'm the managing partner of Bradyware Arpeggio, a data-driven management consultancy, which brings clarity to owners and managers of unique businesses facing unique strategic decisions. Our parent, Brady Ware & Company, is sponsoring this podcast. Brady Ware is a public accounting firm with offices in Dayton, Ohio, Alpharetta, Georgia, Columbus, Ohio, and Richmond, Indiana. If you would like to engage with me on social media with my chart of the day and other content, I'm on LinkedIn as myself and at Unblakeable on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I also host a LinkedIn group called Unblakeable's Group That Doesn't Suck, so please join that as well if you'd like to engage. Today's topic is should I resist? And, and what does that mean? Well, in my 52 trips around the sun, um, this, we are in an unprecedented time of social and economic upheaval. Certainly, you know, I think you have to go back to the 1970s and I was only a kid then I care about that stuff to encounter anything like this. And interestingly enough, we're gonna that that that's gonna be a recurring theme for today's show, as a matter of fact. But but now, you know, we're we're put in a position of 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 resisting toxic relationships. We're in a position of resisting toxic employers. We're in a position. We're always in a position at some point of resisting um, people who want to manipulate us into doing or accepting bad things. And we could apply this, of course, to the political arena, which uh, seems to be becoming more polarized by the day, and I don't know what the solution is there. Um, We're certainly seeing it in in business as people, as as we have covered many times in the show, have, have redefined their relationship with work, and frankly, with a lot of the rest of the world. And there's even a decision as to whether or not we're going to resist um, COVID or how we're going to resist COVID. Are we going to resist it by being vaccinated? Are we going to resist the resistance? Are we going to resist vaccination mandates? And some people are doing that. In many cases, a great personal cost to them. In some cases, the cost of their lives. So, you know, the resistance there while some of us may disagree with it, I, I happen to disagree with it. I don't think that that's a trivial, I don't think that that's a trivial exercise. But I think that one of the things that, um, as I kind of reflect upon upon our society right now in our country, is is not that it's a good or bad place, but I do think it's an angry place. It's a much angrier place than I can never, I can never remember. Um. And, you know, the first president that I can remember was Ronald Reagan. And 
whether you voted for him or not, and I, I'm certainly not one of these guys that lionizes him or really almost any president, Many every, every president that I've grown up with has been flawed in some way. Um, and whether you agree with the politics or not, the one thing that he was, I think, always was a positive voice. Um, and And our political landscape has changed where negative voices are um are being heard more there's an economic argument for negative voices negativity right now i think you can argue sells and um there's a there's a resistance that i think is required to just be resist to avoid being overwhelmed by that sense of pervasive anger and and negativity and so I've wanted to do this show for a long time. This is not a new, this is not a new phenomenon. Um, but, but, you know, not everybody can talk to this authoritatively, but I think I found the right guy who can talk about resistance authoritatively. And I think that you're going to agree. Um, this will probably be the longest introduction I've made of a guest and too bad because he's earned it. Um, joining us today is Lee Ellis, who is president and founder of Leading with Honor a leadership and team development training and coaching company and Freedom Star Media, a publishing company that provides leadership and resources, leadership resources and training. For over 20 years, Lee has served as an executive coach and a corporate coach in the areas of hiring, team building, leadership, human performance development and succession planning. His approach to maximizing leadership performance has been implemented by Fortune 500 clients, senior executives and C-level leaders in telecommunications, healthcare, insurance, energy, IT, automated, automotive, military, and not-for-profit not sectors. Um, Lee and his wife, Mary, have four grown children and six grandchildren, and they reside in the metro area, metro area uh, of Atlanta. During the Vietnam War, Lee's aircraft was shot down over enemy territory, and he was held as a prisoner of war in various prisons in the Hanoi area for over five years. He has awarded two silver stars, a Legion of Merit, the Bronze Star with Valor device, the Purple Heart, the Air Medal with eight oak leaf clusters, and the Prisoner of War Medal for his service in Vietnam. In addition, he has awarded four Air Force Commendation Medals and four Meritorious Service Medals for performance excellence. And by the way, after being released, he went back into active service. Leadership Freedom is the original consulting, coaching, and training organization founded by Lee Ellis. In, 20, in 2017, or since then, they're making the transition from leadership for, uh, freedom to the new organizational name, which you now know as Leading with Honor. Um, first, Lee Ellis, thank you for your service to our country and welcome to the Decision Vision podcast. It's an honor to have you. Thank you, Mike. Great to be with you. And uh, I always enjoy hearing what you have to say about things. I've seen you on several uh, interviews on our CEO, Net Weavers, and I admire your wisdom. So good to be with you. Well, I appreciate that. So, you know, you have you have the I think the ultimate perspective of resistance, right? And we talked about, and you were in, in you were in the same prison camp as uh, the late Senator John McCain, correct? Yes, right. So, you know, you're. I, mean, I, I just cannot imagine. It's even hard to formulate the questions here, even though I have them written down. Right, you're you're shot down. You're over enemy territory. You're you're taken into custody, and and you're put in a position where you know you're you're in prison as a hostile as an enemy combatant, and and my question I guess is is you know in that moment how do you decide 
that it's worth resisting because your captors didn't just want you to be there. They, they weren't, they weren't just feeding you for their, for their health or certainly not even yours necessarily, but they wanted you to do things for them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And you had to make a conscious decision to resist that decide it was worth to do. So a great personal suffering. Um, how do you come to a point where, where it's worth doing that, where it's worth resisting? Well, we had uh, memorized actually the code of conduct, which is, uh, I think it's about six articles in ROTC at the University of Georgia is where I memorized it. And uh, those six articles describe what is the uh, role of a person who's been captured and is a prisoner of war. Basically, you commit to serving your country honorably, not sharing anything with the enemy that uh, you shouldn't other than your name, rank, service number, date of birth, and things that are very generic are okay, but anything that would have to do with military intelligence and especially making oral or written comments that would be harmful to your country and its allies, that's right there in there. So those six articles were the foundation of what I really wanted to stand for and stand by. I had committed to that when I took the oath. So my goal is to live up to that. And so that's how I resisted. I said, no, they asked me to share this. I said, no, they said, fill out this. I said, no. And of course that was a battle. And uh, sometimes uh, I got tortured out of it. And eventually I did give them something but it was nothing of value to them. It was all either. I remember I had to fill out a three page biography one time and I resisted. And eventually I gave in and said, yes, I'll do it. And I want you to know that I was in leg irons and handcuffs and blindfolded on the filthy floor in the torture room. And I cried like a baby because I was so ashamed. I felt like the lowest scum that had ever worn the uniform of the United States. Well, I gave them nothing that was true of any value except my father's first and last name. But I still felt like I wasn't tough enough to beat him. And that was my disappointment. Well, when I get back to my cell, I found out other guys had been through similar things and some lasted longer than I did and some didn't last as long as I did. So I, that helped, but it was still a pretty big shocker that I wasn't tough enough. But that was our commitment right up front. And that got reinforced by our leadership. So I'm I'm curious. I want to I want to kind of unpack some of this because I, I can see many many angles in terms of determining that you're going to resist. Right? One one, and I'm 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 not saying this is true, but just one path to saying you're going to resist, resist is well, they're the enemy, and I don't like these guys, and they're not treating me and my my comrades very well, so I'm not going to help them. Another path is well, I signed an oath where I made a a personal commitment to my country, to my government, to the people I'm trying to protect. And it says Lee Ellis on it. And by golly, that that's going to be my path to resistance. Or, you know, it could be something entirely different that maybe you're just resisting because I don't want to say just, but it could be as simple and as foundational that you're with a group of other guys that are resisting as well. Right. And you don't want to be the guy that yeah. you don't want to be the weak, the weak bat in the lineup, so to speak. Was it any one of those things that dominated? Was it a combination of three? Am I totally missing it? And there's something else? What's the calculus like? No, I think uh, those are the main points that, that influence us all in that, first of all, because you might not be able to see another person for a week or a month. In some cases, it was six months to a year. 
although we did have covert communication, uh, but it might be a weeks and months before you actually have, was able to talk to somebody uh, and you might be that isolated. So you had to stand on your own uh, footing, so to speak, your own foundation. And that's where that code of conduct came in and your commitment to it. And then the other thing, I think, just generally knowing that you were up against an enemy, the communists, and they were working with the Russians and the Chinese. Actually, they were almost the uh, uh, the hand of the Chinese and uh, the Russians and Chinese pushing against the U.S. And so communists all kind of work together. So being wanting to resist them uh, was a big part of it, too. And then some of it was just personal pride. I'm the good guy. You're the bad guy. I don't want to give in to you. <laughs> well, and you, and that's what I want to ask you about next is that when you when you were in the moment, did you think of yourself as a resistor or did you think of yourself as as something else? Good guy versus bad guy or something else? We saw it as duty. OK, our duty is to resist the enemy. And so, uh, yes, I saw myself as a resistor, but uh, it was a, a piece of pride that I the line was drawn. And when that line they stepped over the line, uh, I was going to push back. So. In the movies, they talk about people give, being given training to resist torture, interrogation, mm-hmm. and so forth. I mean, is that true? Is that a thing? Were you given that sort of training? And if so, yeah. did you find the training helpful in practice? Yeah, it was helpful. Uh, absolutely, it was helpful. In fact, I was thinking about that this past week. I was thinking about <laughs> my nature is uh, to be able, I've been blessed with a nature that I can tolerate things without getting too panicky, okay? And so uh, they put me in a little box uh, about the size you'd put a pig in. And I was cramped up like this and left me in there for 30, 40 minutes in the dark where I couldn't even move my elbows out or move my head up. Well, a lot of people would panic with that. And I just said, okay, I'm hanging in here. I'm doing this now. And then they put me in another uh, vertical. It was like a locker in a, in a gym. Okay. You walk in, you hang up your clothes. Well, they locked me up in there and uh, for a day or so, and uh, I had to stand up and it's about a day and a half. And, you know, I just think about things to think about. And I could hear the guy down. There was a guy down the hall from me crying. And I'm thinking, well, I'm not going to cry yet. <laughs> so, you know, you just um, I think being an air crew member as an air crew member, you've gone through both psychological and physical screening and you have a pretty strong ego. It takes a lot of confidence to fly a fighter. And I think, and the average age in the POWs was uh, uh, a capture of the long-term guys was like 30, 31. And I just turned 24. So that's why I was a kid there. But, you know, we were not 18 year olds or 19 year olds. We'd been out on our own. We'd been through a lot of training. I'd been through uh, survival school, the one you just mentioned. I've been through uh water survival training. I've been through jungle survival training. So all that builds you up and prepares you to be ready for very difficult situations. So, you know, I, I, you can't, you know, if you haven't been there, I just, I just don't think you can, you can imagine it obviously, but you're in a, you're in a scenario under which, I mean, at some level it has to be terrifying, right? You just don't know what they're going to do. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And, and, 
your power is limited, right? To put it mildly, yeah. right? That's that's sort of the whole point. I got a story about being terrified. If I can jump in here. Please. Right after I was they don't captured, want to hear me. They want to hear you. Go. And I got to the first English speaker on the way to Hanoi. It was a, it was a holding camp, you know, where they would uh, say it's a bamboo prison. They put you in leg irons and handcuffs or tied rope tied until they got enough of you there to have four or five or six in a truck and then take you on to Hanoi. And so they had this one arm interrogator there who spoke very broken English. And I can't remember. We all had names for all these guys and can't remember his name now. But he asked me a question about the kind of airplane I was flying and where I was based out of. Well, he asked me what kind of airplane I was flying and I wouldn't tell him. But I saw he had my checklist over there behind him on the table. They picked it up when I jumped out of the airplane. And and I said, I'm not, I'll give you name, rank, service, number, date of birth, answering no more questions. And he just started screaming at me and he yelled at the guard behind me. There were a couple of guards there. And that guard cranked in a bullet a, 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 into the, I could hear him, you know, I'm a, I shoot rifles and shotguns. I heard him crank in a bullet. And he yelled at the guy and the guy put it right up to the side of my head. He said, you answer or I kill you now. Well, I just got captured. I didn't know whether he was truthful and honest and would. Now, now I know later I learned he probably wouldn't have. But then I didn't know. So I told him I was flying an F-4 Phantom. Well, he had my checklist there, so I didn't really give him any. So I answered three or four questions. I didn't give him anything that was not obvious already or that he didn't. Uh, already know I didn't give him anything else and so I really felt bad about that but you know I really didn't feel like I had a choice so I was scared by the way very yeah I I mean there'd be something wrong with you if you weren't so um you know so so when you're when you're in that situation and that's that's really a perfect example right at any point they can just decide to put a bullet in you there's no there's no recourse that's just that's just it how do you conceive of ways to resist when the power dynamic is so against you? I think you have to evaluate that. Uh, I, I make these kind of decisions all the time. I have to evaluate, is this worth me resisting? Okay. I have, I've had partners, business partners. Okay. Uh, I have friends, uh, I have clients and I have to decide, is this worth me taking a stand? And sometimes, most of the time, it's not, but sometimes it is. And so if they say, well, I'm out of here, well, okay. You know, once you've been a POW for five and a half years, you don't worry about a lot of things that most people worry about day to day. When I came home, I never worried about getting promoted again. I just said, I'm going to do my job. I'm going to do it the very best I can. I'm going to be the person I want to be. And if I get promoted, fine. And if I don't, hey, that's okay. I'm a whole lot better off than I was locked up up there. (laughs) So in the moment, as you think about, I guess we would now almost call them microaggressions, if you will, right? Mm -hmm. Even resisting the simplest, what must have been very frustrating to your captors, because you are resisting to comply with even what to them must have seemed like the simplest comment, the simplest um, task, right? In that moment, do you think of the consequences of resisting or do you, do you have to kind of put that aside to give you the metal to resist? 
Well, you know, I think, Mike, the biggest biggest issue here that we're talking around is really character, honor, integrity. Okay, I think that's where we need to clarify is what is my what is my character? What I believe is has integrity. What I believe is honorable, and then at to what level I'm willing to sacrifice for that. And how much risk am I willing to take? I mean, I battle this all the time because I'm a pretty opinionated uh, person, okay? And I see stuff on social media that I just want to jump in there and and I have to coach myself, you know, it's not worth it right now. You, you'll you have another time at another level where you, this is not going to matter to hill of beans, what you say in that social media, okay? And they're just cranking you up to respond and so why not approach this issue from the higher level of character and integrity where you can sit down and talk with others who are on the other side and let's work through this. I mean, our country was founded basically with two parties because I think we need two parties. We need accountability. So if one party holds the other one accountable to our constitution and our values, then I think that's a good thing. It helps keep us in line, just like my wife and I, we kind of help keep each other in line. Uh, my business partners and I, my, my managing director, you know, we sit down and talk about it. And I'll say, well, I think we should do this. And he said, well, I think that's not a good idea. And I say, well, tell me why. And we analyze it. And it really, it's a day-to-day battle for honor and character and integrity. And you've got to evaluate to what is this risk, the risk versus reward. And is there a better place for me to play this battle? Let me ask you this. I'm going to go off script here because I, I wonder. I I don't I don't know you that well, but I've interacted with you enough to know that you're a very positive guy. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you I don't know if you if you were brought into the Hanoi Hilton that way or not, but you certainly emerged that way. At yeah. least that's the finished product that I've seen. Does positivity make you a more effective resistor? Does it make Absolutely. you more effective than negativity? Absolutely, man. Absolutely, it does. Uh, you got to focus on the positive and be able to identify the negatives that creep in around you and how you're going to handle them in a positive way. Okay. Cause I can get very negative by the way. Cause I don't mind my personality is I don't mind arguing. Cause I want to, if my, if I'm off base, I want you to show me the logic and I'll get on your side. Okay. So I don't mind that. And I can get a little critical and all, but the reality is that doesn't, that doesn't work very well for very long. And so how, for me, I have to coach myself, how can I take a positive approach to this where I show respect for the other person? Here's the bottom line is the truth is every human being wants to be loved and cared for. They want to be accepted. I have in coaching leaders, I talk about, yes, you have to accomplish submission. You have to get results. Okay. But, You also have to connect with your people. You have to acknowledge their existence. You have to accept them for who they are. You have to affirm them on specifics. And you have to show them that you appreciate having them on your team. And when you do that, you know what's going to happen? They're going to believe in themselves and they're going to perform better. And they're going to stay with you longer. And they're going to grow more. Because now they're less insecure and they're more secure. And they're going to perform more healthily and more effectively. So as a leader... I coach myself, I coach other leaders, man, this, this is probably hard for you. It is for a lot of us, okay? But when you do it and intentional about it, 
it builds the culture that you want to be in. Does it does it make a difference that you're resisting in a group versus an individual? Oh yeah, you know, the guy standing in front of the tank in Tiananmen Square in '89 versus you know a whole group of protesters and and I guess maybe that's why they separated you in the prison system. Yeah, it does. Yes, it does. You know, when you camaraderie and teamwork and collaboration, that feeling of I'm not in this alone, it's huge. That's why we would take great risks to have that covert communication. And I was a good risk taker. So I would reach out to guys in solitary confinement. Now I had people protecting me by watching. We called it clearing. They'd be looking through the cracks in the doors and listening out the back for a guard coming. And when the guard came, they would <coughs> they'd do like that or they'd bump the wall with their elbow. And we'd all do like this and act like we were just snoozing there, you know. But, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's critical to be connected to others. You don't want to fight this battle alone. Fighter pilots, we like to – we don't ever want to fight alone. Um, now, one of the issues of resisting, and, and we see this unfolding in Russia and Ukraine right now, is that when you resist, it's not necessarily just you that suffers the consequences of your resistance, but others around you that may not want you to resist necessarily, right? right? But they, they can they, they can suffer. We're seeing in Russia that you know, and and Ukraine, if if you are if you are resisting um, the the propaganda, the party line that, or if you're a soldier and you refuse to fight, it's not just you that gets shot, but your family's going to suffer, right? And that's how they maintain leverage. Yeah. yeah, that's their system. Unfortunately, you must have recognized also that there there were sort of consequences to others, and it's not this happens in business too. How do you think about that? How do you reconcile those things? Can you reconcile them? I think you always have to evaluate, going back to what I said earlier, you always have to evaluate what is the gain versus the loss. And sometimes the, the gain is good, what you want, but the loss may be greater. And so you just have to back up and keep your mouth shut and wait till another time and to another situation. Maybe more evidence builds up and more people uh, see the way the world the way you do. So I think you have to evaluate that all the time. And going back to the community and the group, you know, I don't trust. I, I feel like I'm very confident about myself. OK, but I know myself well enough that. Sometimes what I think is right and wise, it's off a step. So I have, you've got to have mentors, friends, and my wife, for instance, is one of those in certain areas, in certain areas, she say, I don't know anything about that. But I have business mentors that I reach out to when I'm going to make a decision where I know I'm too emotionally connected that I'm afraid I can't make a wise decision. And I'll say, let me run this by you and you tell me how you see it. And then I sit there and listen. I'm not giving up my decision to them. I just want to hear, is there something I'm missing that I need to know? So I think that's so important. So um, I want to pivot a little bit more to a more direct kind of connection with, with, with business here. And, you know, you are, you're not, you're not just a former POW. I mean, you're a successful, highly influential leadership trainer. So I'd like to switch and talk about that a little bit. I'd like to start with, you know, how do businesses try to break? First of all, what are, have, you, have you seen cases where, the, in fact, there are employees that, that do try to resist things that are happening in a company? And if so, what 
what do companies do to try to break that resistance? If I'm thinking of resisting something in my company, for example, what are some tactics you see that management tries to, to implement to break that resistance? Well, that's a little, that's a little bit of a difficult one for me because here's what happens. Most of the time, really good leaders bring me in bad leaders don't ever bring in a leadership consultant (laughs) (laughs) and so uh, most of the leaders i've worked with have been really good leaders that would listen and they were cared about their people they were mission focused but they cared about their people so i don't have a lot of experience that and i i'm sure i'll think of something here in a minute um but i think life is that way you have to constantly evaluate uh, the risk versus reward, and in light of your character and your life purpose and your mission, and that's why I say sometimes you've got to get that. Uh, you got to have be able to discuss that with somebody else. Don't do that just by yourself in secret. You got to have somebody who can look at it slightly different, give you some feedback, and discuss it and take it around, and then you make your decision about what you're going to do. Uh, I think that um, really good companies, they realize their people are important and they listen to them. Uh, you know, I was saying about this the other day, creativity in the POW camp came from the bottom up. It didn't come from the top down. Strategy comes from the bottom, top down. Creativity and innovation and practical uh, fixes and money savers come from the bottom up. And so leaders have to learn to build a culture where you can set the boundaries in the culture and then let your people operate, let them go after it. And you have to really recommunicate those boundaries periodically, but it's so much better because you're going to have people take ownership and responsibility and be accountable at the lower levels. And that makes for a much better organization and uh, work environment. So let me uh, let me phrase a question a different way. Because your your point about about good leadership teams is uh, is well 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 taken. Um, but I, I would you know I, for most people we report to somebody else, right? It's it's mm-hmm. rare. There are some people that don't report to anybody else. You're a sole you're a sole proprietor. And maybe you've raised no outside capital, right? Maybe you have no obligations to anybody else, but that that's sort of rare. But even you know, successful leadership of, of companies may have boards to which they need to report. And there's there's a resistance that that may need to arise against an aggressive board, for example, or there's a resistance against a market trend, or maybe there's a resistance, uh, for example, to manage quarterly earnings, right? That that or there's a resistance to um, quote cut costs that's going to you know hurt people in your organization. So uh, I think my last question was phrased badly. This is a long preamble to to reconstituting the question. In that, would you agree that good leaders are actually good resistors because they often have a lot of things they need to resist? Yes, I think so. And but I think listening is a powerful way to re- actually resist. You know, instead of just put, about that. stomping, instead of just stomping your fists and saying, no, we're not doing that. Get out of here. It tells you if they're resisting that there's something they don't see that you see. They don't understand. And so this is where clarifying over and over, you know, uh, for all his good and bad, Jack Wells said, 
at GE used to say, everywhere I go, I preach the same sermon. And he was saying over and over again what their mission was from the high levels and that sort of thing. As a leader, you have to continually clarify and re-clarify your mission, the boundaries of it, what your expectations are, and uh, those kind of things. And when you come out with a new idea or you change or you, you're meeting resistance, then you probably need to listen to them and hear their uh, reasons for resisting and then help them see why we can't do that. And I think they'll respect that. And they're much more likely to fold up and, and stay with you for a while and support you. And, and then the, you may reach a point and say, well, this is what we're going to do. So you have a choice. You can join us and work with us, or you can go somewhere else. So, you know, in, in a collective resistance, uh, some people, and you sort of hinted at this at the start of the conversation, some people seem to have an endless capacity for resistance and others don't. And, and I, I would imagine a fact of life is that that, that people who are initially committed to the resistance are simply going to get broken. It simply just becomes too difficult. And that individual just cannot, does not have the wherewithal, cannot summon the wherewithal to continue the resistance against the adverse consequences that are called the pressure that, that, that they're facing. Um, I have two questions based on that. The first question is, you know, can, I think everybody sort of feels like they're reaching their breaking point. I'm sure that must have happened to you at some point. You might have felt like you were, you're reaching a breaking point. How do you steal yourself to saying, I'm reaching a breaking point, but I'm going to bend and not break? How do you do that? Well, I think you have to sort it out in your head. And so I thought of something while you were talking there. I want to go back to, though, and I'll come back to that. It'll, yeah. This will fit into it. Is uh, when you go to someone who's putting something on you and they're your boss and you don't like it, then I think you owe it to them to go sit down and talk to them and tell them why you don't like it, why you don't think it's good for the company, or if it's unethical. See, this could be a big issue here. They want you to do something that's unethical. Yep. And you've got to evaluate that and have that discussion with them. And they say, no, this is, this is okay. We have to do this. Okay. We have to tell a lie. We have to make up stuff and put it out there, which that's happening a lot nowadays. Then you have to decide. For me, the decision is, is it ethical? Is it uh, honorable? And if it's not dishonorable and it's not unethical, then I'm probably going to say, hey, this is your decision. If it works great, I'm going to do it. I'm going to give it all I got. But if it fails, you take ownership. I'm going to do my best, but I don't think it's going to work. But, you know, I'm going to do my best. And so you have, you might even have to say that. You just say it's ethical. It's, it's your responsibility. If you want to decide to do that, I will support you. I'll do my best. And then you've, you've, you've helped them the best way you can. And now it's the leader's responsibility. And if some, if it fails, they can't come back to you and say, hey, this was your fault because you said, you know, no, I showed, I told you it wasn't a good idea, but I've done my best to make it happen. It didn't work. So um, I think that's very important. And I do that. I've gone to leaders and said, I don't think this is a good idea. I think we ought to do this. And they said, well, I think we ought to do this. And I say, well, you're the boss. 
absolutely. I'll just say, yes, sir, we're going to go do it. I'm going to do it to the very best of my ability because it's, it's not illegal. It's not unethical. And you're the boss and you own this decision. And, and I, I think what you're really getting at is everybody sort of has, has a line. At least most people have a line that mm-hmm. you're not going to cross. Yeah. Right? And, and in, in many of our professions, we have rules, regulations, or just professional standards that try to give clarity to that line. Um, but what, what I want to, what I want to get to, and you may, this may be an unfair question. If it is, we'll just move on. Um, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm close to the Ukraine situation because I lived there for a couple of years, spent a lot of time in that part of the world. I still have friends that are, have, have either fled or they're now serving the Ukrainian military. And, um, uh, you know, one of the issues they're now facing is collaborators. Um, you know, the Russians have come in, there's new management in town. And uh, the Russians, as is widely known, they're not, when they say that, when they say you're under new management by the Russians, it is not good news, right? They're not, they're not a kinder, gentler management, right? right? And I think about, you know, the people that have chosen to collaborate and what they're, they're faced with a horrible choice, right? And, you know, some people are breaking, something they may be, some people may be welcoming them. Maybe they wanted the Russians to come in all along. But at least some subset of them just looked around and said, you know what? It makes no difference. My resistance makes no difference if I'm dead and my family's dead. So I may as well play along. I may as well, quote unquote, work within the system. And, and, and I'm sure that sentiment must have come up among at least some POWs. How do you react to that? How do you combat that kind of mentality? Or, or is, it, is it unfair to call it a rationalization? Well, I think we did not have to face the uh, a decision where our family was going to be involved, but we did have to face decisions where our people, the leaders did, where their people were going to be tortured or whatever. And so uh, I think we all knew what, the, what the, the effort was to do your best, to do your very best. And some people are tougher than others. Some people could draw that some people could go five days, some people could go five hours, and some people couldn't go much more than five minutes. That's just the way human beings are different. And so our leaders learned to accept that. And uh, they knew if the person had done their best and was committed to that, then whatever that came out, they were going to be okay with. So there are some people, you know, if you're talking about killing your family, that would be a little bit different than, uh, other decisions. You know, if I thought it was going to kill my family, the first thing I'd do is I would retreat and get with some more people and get an army together and go back and defend and whatever, you know. But uh, I think it's, uh, you've got you've to measure, going back, I keep going back, risk versus reward. What is at risk and what's the reward if, if we come through with this? What's, what's the right thing to do here? And how much risk do we have to take it? Uh, and going back to the one where I tell somebody, I don't think we ought to do this, and they decide to do it, uh, I'm going to support them 100%. But if that happens a lot, I'm probably going to start looking for a new loca- new job somewhere right. else. I'm going to be leaving. And I think uh, people, the, your good people are going to leave. I mean, it always shows bad leaders, they run all the good people off. And the poor performers hang around because they're afraid they can't get a job somewhere else. 
Now, that may be changing with young people today because they don't care. You know, mom and daddy will take care of me. If I don't make it, I'll just go home and live with mom and dad for a while. <laughs> yeah, there, 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 may, there may be some of that. Um, so I want to bring it back to sort of a, sort of a, a, a different kind of discussion. But I, I had a thought, and I'd love to hear your, your reaction to it. Is there a, is there a, a connection between resistance and radicalization. And, and what, I, what I mean by that is, I'm not even sure what I mean by that, but, but going back to my, my introductory remarks where America has been, become an angry place. Yeah. And, and I, I, I have a, a theory that one of the reasons it's become an angry place is that, is that radicalization and resistance are being confused. They're being confounded with one another. Right. I don't. Do you have to be a radical to be a resistor, I guess? Or when you're a resistor, does that automatically make you a radical? Well, I think that's the natural reaction. Yes. I think what we need are people that can rise above that. You know, I've been thinking for five or six years because I pay attention to a lot of this stuff, how good it would be to get some senior leaders from all areas together. Uh, You know, our we changed our brand, our company still leadership freedom, but it, we changed our brand to leading with honor in 2012 when the book came out. And uh, if we could have a, a an honor group come together from all parties all around the country to talk about what does honor look like and how does it serve our country right now? What is, how can we disagree and work together and sit down and listen to each other and focus on certain things? But the problem is, I mean, that would be a great idea. You know, uh, I thought of, I know a lot of people, CEOs and generals and admirals and these kind of people, but I haven't had time to do that. But what's, what's happening is that we've been radicalized primarily through social media. If we didn't have social media, I don't know if you've seen that, uh, that movie about the social dilemma about uh, the tech, the tech, uh, Silicon Valley, and and they've got a lot of these programmers on there who got paid to build programs that would make a lot of money. Well, and they talk about it. When we when we did this, we did not write this to divide the country. But now, if we don't change something, we're going to be in a civil war within 30 years because this is going to continue to multiply and divide us because the more money we make, the more the more we can separate people into groups, the more money we make. Okay, you like this? Okay, I got other people coming in. And so uh, the truth is, if we don't somehow learn to sit down and work through the important issues, the radical is going to increase. Now, here's the other truth. You know, I can prove to you if I had to indirectly that Russia and China are pouring millions, if not billions, into social media and other places to divide us. They're funding different organizations to they don't care they just want to divide us right because the more they can divide us obviously they would like for the socialists to take over but they just want to divide us and that opens it up for the socialists to uh to take over and they will whether it's race gender politics anything they can do to divide us i have a friend here in atlanta who was a kgb agent okay who defected <laughs> he's a brilliant guy who grew up in east germany he said, you know, growing up in East Germany, 
I just hated the West because they were so evil. And the U.S. was the most evil because that's what I was taught. That's what I heard on the radio. That's what I saw on TV. And that's the people in Russia and communist countries. They control the media and the message. And in Hanoi, we had propaganda three times a day, morning, noon, and night. Okay. The people in, in Vietnam, even if you working in the rice field, they had a speaker that would blast the propaganda to you over the rice fields. It was incredible how propaganda is intended. In the schools, they were taught certain things. I was talking to a young, young fellow who's a guard, English speaker, though. Most of them were English speakers. He spoke a little bit, and I said, he was talking about something. He said, yeah, World War II. He said, when Russia, Japan surrendered, when Russia declared war on them, within five days, Russia saved us. Russia won World War II because that's what he'd been taught. Well, Russia didn't join the war until after we dropped the big bombs over there and Japan was ready to surrender. But he had never been taught that. See, it's all how you share that information and get people over to your side. And the bottom line, all of this is power. The, what's going on right now is all about power. I want to be more, I want to be more in charge politically, uh, financially, whatever it is. I want to be more, more, I want more power. You know, that, that, that reminds me of uh, my first, actually my first couple of apartments, my first one in Minsk and then uh, in Kiev a couple of years later, there are both Soviet built apartments. And in those old Soviet apartments, they always had a radio built into the kitchen and you could not turn the radio off. You could turn the volume down, but there was actually no, the only way to turn it off wow. was to rip the damn thing out of the wall. That's what they do in communist countries. Twenty-four. It was, uh, it was fascinating that it went even to that level. Yeah. Um, I'm talking with Lee Ellis and the topic is, should I resist? So you, you, you mentioned something that, that I think is maybe an interesting connection. I don't know. Maybe it's, maybe it's totally dumb. Um, but, but it seems to me there's actually a potentially a connection between communication and resistance. Yes. Right? And, and I think it goes, I think there are two dimensions to that. One dimension is as you talked about before with your fellow POWs, your ability to communicate created sort of a, a strength, right? A, a cohesive mm -hmm. strength and essential. Yeah. Some, but also I think the opportunity to communicate with your oppressor for lack of a better term, there's a better word than that. Mm -hmm. I just can't think of it right now, but the person who's, who wants to make you resist, right? The mm -hmm. opportunity to, to communicate with them and have what, and have some constructive communication of some kind, probably tends to defuse resistance a little bit probably what it tends to defuse diffuse resistance a little bit make it less make you want to resist less if you can actually have a conversation for example you probably couldn't even talk to most of your captors um at least not initially unless you learn vietnamese from them but well um, yeah sometimes but what what it really was for us they did not understand the subtleties of the english language <laughs> yeah <laughs> so uh we would pull their chain a little bit if we could uh, you know it was uh we just tried to outsmart them yeah even in those conversations we were generally trying to outsmart them and uh now if you had just been tortured and you were suffering they would they would use the good guy bad guy so the bad guy is threatening you you know we're gonna we'll do this to kill you you know we're gonna wear you out we'll 
da-da-da-da-da. And then the good guy comes in and said, oh, I'm so sorry they're doing this to you. That You know, you just fill out these two pages. I'll get them off your back, you know, that kind of thing. And so we were always alert for that sort of thing. Uh, and and most of our communications were uh, either we were telling them what the way we saw the world or we were laying some groundwork to pull their chain later. Lee, this has been a great conversation, but I, I got to be respectful of your time, even though I, I could do this for another three hours, but that's not fair to you. Um, it's, it, there's a very good chance we didn't get to questions that our listeners would have liked us to cover or we didn't stand it long enough. If somebody wants to contact you for more information about your leadership services or your perspectives on leadership, what's the best way to do so? Uh, just go to leadingwithhonor.com and we have a place there where they can just check in and we'll follow up directly right there. Yeah. Good. Hey, I want to I want to say one more thing in closing out. Uh, we have an honor code we developed in 2014. It's free. It's a, a nice, colorful graphic, one page. It has seven articles on it. Uh, I'll send you one and you could put it out there on your website if you want to. But when you battle with that honor code to be the person that you think you ought to be and others ought to be, uh, it really uh, is probably one of the most helpful things. Like the, the code of conduct was for the POWs. The honor code can be that for us. And when we work to be the honorable person, then it takes away a lot. It gives us the ability to fight off a lot of this temptation uh, to be sarcastic and uh, uh, demonizing of others and helps us to see what's the respectful, honorable thing to do here. I may not like you, but I need to be able to show you respect because being disrespectful is probably not going to help at all. And it's just not who I am. I need to fight to be the person I am to treat others with respect. Well, I can't end it better than that. So I'm not going to try. Um, that's going to wrap it up for today's program. And I'd like to thank Lee Ellis so much for sharing his expertise with us. We'll be exploring a new topic each week, so please tune in so that when you're faced with your next business decision, you have clear vision when making it. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider leaving a review with your favorite podcast aggregator. It helps people find us so that we can help them. If you would like to engage with me on social media with my chart of the day and other content, I'm on LinkedIn as myself and at Unblakeable on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Also, check out my LinkedIn group called Unblakeable's Group That Doesn't Suck. Once again, this is Mike Blake. Our sponsor is Brady Ware and Company, and this has been the Decision Vision Podcast.